Hi, everybody. This is Laura Gallagher, and I just really enjoyed my conversation with Ryan Foland, talking about how I was able to combine my passion for acting and my expertise in psychology and bring it on stage so that I could create more experiences for people. I hope you really enjoy the episode, and it's a really great experience for you. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ahoy, everybody, and welcome to today's World of Speakers episode, and I'm excited to have Laura Gallagher. She is not only a speaker, she's an organizational psychologist, and her specialty is in the science of human behavior. So we are going to talk about human behavior, how it interacts with speaking, what you do for companies, and at the end of the day, we will all be smarter humans. Does that sound like a good deal? That sounds great. All right. The first thing I want to do is get to know you as a human, and I believe that storytelling is the method in which to extract that. So if I challenge you with coming up with a single story from your past that if that's the only information I had, I could use it to accurately describe basically who you are as a person. So what would that story be? Does anything jump to the top of your mind? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I have a story from when I was about 27 years old. So at this point, I'm about three years into a career working for NASA Kennedy Space Center. Now, I was hired to work for them after the Space Shuttle Columbia tragedy of 2003. Essentially, in addition to the technical elements of the accident, they also deemed that there were factors like decision-making and culture and leadership that contributed to the tragedy. So they really wanted to focus on developing really intentional leadership behaviors to have the kind of culture where there's psychological safety and open expression. And so I was there and my role was to be working with leaders to help them really improve upon their behaviors, become more self-aware and create the kind of environment where people feel safe to speak up. And so when I'm 27, about three years into doing this, I went through a five-day workshop called The Human Element. And it was an incredibly intense experience for me where I received a lot of feedback. Everybody who goes through it receives a lot of feedback had a lot of experiences. And part of what I learned about myself is that I was actually exhibiting a lot of the very behaviors that I was working with leaders to shift, right? So it really rocked my my self-concept. It was extremely challenging. I went into the workshop really feeling good about myself, honestly, like life seemed great, you know, I was dating this great guy. I had this great job. I was almost done with my PhD. I'm like, things are good. And then I go through this workshop and I felt like a shell of a human. I was like, I don't even know who I am anymore because, you know, I probably was a little bit, I don't know, on my high horse, maybe a little bit, not pretentious, but potentially even kind of judgy, right? For other people, you know, how can you not get this stuff? Could we say that it was? Could we say it was fresh off the books instead of fresh off the boat? Like you're, you're just you've got all this book knowledge, and you just think that that's what you need. Was it that? I think that was a part of it. I think it was also context because I actually really did like the way that I would show up when I was working with the leaders themselves. So when I was working with them, I was 
supportive and I was helpful and I would build trust with them and it was great. And the feedback that I got, the workshop that I experienced was with people on my own team. And so it was when I was in that context of being a leader versus an individual contributor, that's where I lacked the kind of self-awareness that I was really preaching to the leaders that I was working with. And I'm really glad that I had the experience because it created so much more empathy in me (laughs) to really get, yeah, this is a different game. I mean, to a degree, even if I was exhibiting the same behavior working as a coach and a consultant to leaders at NASA, that same behavior working with people who are on my team or regard me as a leader doesn't work the same. And so recognizing the situational awareness and focusing on creating relationships with each one of the people on my team such that each one of them felt as comfortable as possible with me. I think, you know, that's really what I took from it. So now I'm really into the practice of the human element. I'm a licensed human element practitioner and the whole focus is like from the inside out. So instead of just focusing on trying to shift behaviors, which is that outer layer, it's what people see. I am all about helping people get down into the core of what they believe about themselves, especially subconsciously. You know, what's the story they tell themselves about themselves? How does that help them? How does it get in their way? Interesting. So from your youth, did you know that you would want to grow up and be this type of a psychologist when it comes to dissecting the human brain? I would say to a degree. So when I was real little, I actually wanted to be an actress. Okay. (laughs) You know, I always enjoyed being on stage. I enjoyed elements of performance. I think that I've always been fairly in touch with my own emotions and really sort of enjoyed having that access to myself. And then I wanted to do psychology because I thought it'd be so great to just be able to give people advice. And now as a speaker and a coach and a consultant, I guess there's advice sometimes. But I think the shift away from what I maybe thought my career would be is how much is focused on, I don't know, not giving advice, but just creating experiences for other people so they can learn and they can start to experience themselves differently. So similar, like I I had some ideas of what it would be like, but I think in my head as a kid, I thought it would be sort of me sitting on a chair as some kind of an expert just with all the answers. And that's so not how life works. Just dosing out the advice as you see fit, right? Yeah. Here's what, here's what you should do. Yeah, you know, but that's not at all my approach anymore. <laughs> do you think that your initial inclination to be an actor has influenced your path to the stage? It's almost like you are, to some extent, a performer, right? Do you create that same connection? Do you feel like you're an actor? Not you're taking on different roles, but I'm curious to see the connections of the human element of this want and the desire to sort of enjoy the art of acting and the art of speaking. You know, I see some parallels, but do you see parallels in there for yourself? I see huge parallels. So I've been doing speaking presentations. I've been in front of audiences for pretty much my entire career, but it was really only a couple of years ago that I said, you know what, I really want to do this speaking thing more professionally. This is something I really want to focus on and grow. And I got very excited about how it all seemed to be manifesting because I I spent about 15 years of my life acting as a kid, nothing like professional, just there was a chance to do a school play. I would do it and I would probably be in the lead role. And I did that all the way through graduate school. And then I accumulated 15 years of experience in psychology between graduate school and the, the careers with NASA and Disney and then working for myself. So I'm like, this idea of being a professional speaker, I get to take this acting and performance 
element and combine it with psychology and, you know, giving advice or helping people, you know, using expertise to really impact people's lives. And it just felt so perfect for me. Now, do you think that your parents influenced you in either the acting direction or this ultimate uh, interest into the mind? Because it's always interesting to see what parents do in relation to what you did. How were they in supporting your path to where you are? You know, okay, so one of the coolest memories I have of my dad is when I was about, I think he was about 13 years old, and he knew how much I was enjoying acting. And he said to me, you know, we could move to LA for the summer. We could get a little apartment and we could just see what we can accomplish. We can see about getting you an agent. We can get you auditions. Like if this is something you want to do, let's do it. And I feel like that's very uncommon. I think parents are normally like, you want to do what? <laughs> you know, like not, right, not right. necessarily <laughs> encouraging something that could be so competitive or potentially difficult to make a stable living. And he was so supportive and it was awesome. And I actually think it kind of scared me because I was the one, you know, 13, 14 years old. I was like, well, no, I mean, acting's fun, but I feel like I, you know, I want to get like a real job. Right. But I attribute my, I have what I call a, a borderline delusional sense of self-confidence. Like, I really think I can do anything. If you give me enough time and energy, <laughs> maybe some money to work with an expert, I can do anything I want. That's actually what I believe. And I, I blame them for that. Well, that's a good value or set of values to blame your parents on. Right. Just granted that you don't become a chicken with your head cut off trying to do everything and not doing anything, right? Yes. So that's actually one of the concepts that I teach when I'm working with my clients is to help break free of self-limiting beliefs. It's very useful to acknowledge that just because I can do anything I want to does not mean that I'm obligated to. Interesting. I have a phrase that I tell people, I say, thoughts become words, words become things. So think the thoughts that you want. And when it comes to people who are speaking, that's one of the easiest ways I can help them is just helping them to choose different thoughts that end up being different words that end up with different results. And from my perspective, if somebody asks you if you're a speaker, or if you are a public speaker or sets you up for basically defining what your own beliefs are, so many people default to, oh, no, 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 I'm not a speaker. Oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm not a public speaker. And it's just, if that's what you think, then those are the words that are formed and that's what actually happens. But with just minor tweaks, say, no, that's something I'm working on or that's something I'm excited to get better at. It really, the thoughts set up the words that set up the actions. Is, is, that, is that pretty, see, I don't have a psychology degree, but is that pretty <laughs> foundational? Oh, yeah. I totally agree with that sentiment. And, you know, a simpler, not simpler, just shorter version of that that I've heard that I love is be, do, have. So what if I first build it into my self-concept? What if I make it part of my identity? And then I begin to walk through the world as though, yeah, this is who I am. This is a part of who I am. What changes? What shifts? What feels possible? So I love that philosophy. So I, I'm, I'm interested in the combination between your classically trained acting skills with your classically trained uh, psychology and the combination of those, along with the fact that you can do anything, uh, <laughs> when it comes to speaking, because it's a, it's a really interesting mesh. I, I also have a degree in dramatic art. Uh, I, unlike you, was not aware of theater until I even got to college. Funny side story that I got stressed out about choosing my first set of classes. My mom helped me out. She chose a theater class. I'd never even been in a theater before. And it was just like, it was this very 
weird random string of events that I got involved with it. But I was like, wow, there's so much power when it comes to live human connection. And when Mm -hmm. I got a taste of that, I just loved it. But I moved from acting to producing to directing. I like to step back and see it. So, you know, when it comes from your perspective, I would love to get some serious nuggets of how and, and, and what elements of your acting training combines with how and what elements of your psychology training and how you use that to formulate your speeches or deliver your talks or play mind games with the audience in a way that they don't even know. I don't know. I just, I feel like you've got all these tools. Oh man. Well, so I am kind of a ham, right? So like when I would be in workshops with clients, I would describe a concept from psychology like like defensiveness, right? So defensiveness is something that many people have sort of this really narrow vision of what it is, you know, arms folded, you know, not my fault or whatever. Defensiveness is actually extraordinarily broad. Defenses are something that affect all of us multiple times a day and they manifest very differently. And when teaching about the different forms that defenses can take, I would not just like teach it and describe it, I would always act it out. And it was just a go-to, like I didn't even think about it. To a certain degree, I might plan it a little bit, but we have this science of defensiveness survey and it has like 50 plus different behaviors that you might be engaging in out of defensiveness. And some of them people are like, well, what does this mean? And I'll just like launch into acting it out. You know, like just okay. just doing it. And I started to get all this, you know, feedback from my clients about like, they're like, can you do a few more? <laughs> you know, like, I know what this is, but can you act it out anyway? And so it was just sort of this moment of levity and humor, which is another thing that's really important to me. I actually studied humor for my doctoral dissertation. And so really, wait, wait, wait. So you, you're, you're, was your thesis based on humor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I studied um, what happens when people use humor during a job interview. Interesting. Can I tell you the name of it? Yes, please. (laughs) Okay. All right. So it sounds real geeky at first. So it's called The Moderating Effect of Gender on the Use of Humor During a Job Interview. That's what she said. (laughs) So this was back in in 2010. So gender humor. This was back in 2010 when the office was big. And that's what she said was, you know, I'm dating myself here, but... (laughs) Oh, I love The Office. I've watched it the whole series a few yeah. times. So you're you're talking to me. Michael Scott is he's amazing, but if you really do watch those episodes, you know it was a pre Me Too movement. I mean, yeah, the poor women on that show just get berated. Oh yeah, so, so oh, it's much. Terrible. Sometimes it's hard to watch these oh, days. It's really hard to watch. So, poor Pam. Oh gosh, Pam, it's okay. So was the humor specifically when it came to gender related humor? Was that the study? Yeah. So I mean, I wish that you know I just got the lit review down perfectly and hypothesized exactly what happened with the data. That's not the case. I hypothesized that a job interviewer, you know, somebody in that like employer role would receive the humor differently from candidates if the candidate was male or female. Because especially at the time, I think this is still true, we have a bit of a gender bias in society around humor. We tend to expect humor more from men than from women. At the time, I think this is, I don't know, maybe it was late 90s, maybe it was early aughts, something like 90% of professional comedians were male. There was some kind of statistic I included in my, my literature review. It was overwhelmingly male. And so I expected that since we don't anticipate humor as much from women, we would have more extreme reactions to them using humor in that context. But I didn't actually find that to be the case. What mattered 
from the data actually was the gender of the interviewer. So as a woman, if I'm interviewing you, I don't respond well to any kind of aggressive humor, which is humor that is sarcastic or puts people down. And I don't care if you're a man or a woman. I just don't like it. But a male interview is more like, hey, that's fine. Aggressive humor is fine as long as it's funny. Gotcha. Okay, so we have a lot to unpack here in sort of the bits and pieces of getting into somebody's mind who's not only an actor, but a psychologist and who has an intimate study when it comes to gender-based humanistatement or something like that, right? <laughs> so it, the, one of the things I heard you first say was this acting it out. So when in doubt, should a speaker act it out or do they really have to be, is it more dynamic than that? Um, you know, you said you acted out the defensiveness. To really dig into that one point, should speakers who are listening to this try to incorporate more of actually acting out what they're trying to communicate? I would say yes, absolutely. Do whatever you can to incorporate dialogue. Okay. Dialogue and interaction into your speeches. Now, from a technical standpoint, though, is that like, and then my mom said, Ryan, you got to do this. And then I was like, you know, is it, is it that type of, are you throwing your voice? Like if somebody would, he, would hear this and be like, all right, I can act some stuff out, but wait a minute. I got to make up voices like step me through just the basics of that. When you say create dialogue, are you throwing your voice? Is it he said this? She said that? Are you moving around to do it? What does this one woman show look like? So I would say it depends on what's happening in the story. So if you're using a story, an example from your past in a speech and part of your intention and your hope is to create humor, then absolutely throw your voice, you know become that character and use it, you know, use it as a chance to be, to be comedic and introduce that. And as a woman, if I want to do a man's voice, I'm going to sound a little bit like a dork trying to do a man's, I'm not actually going to sound like my dad, if I'm acting out my dad in a scenario. But if I'm trying to be funny, or I'm hoping that they experience it as funny, then yes, I would say do that. If it's more of a serious moment, and you're wanting to capture a moment of dialogue, but it has like that serious tone, or maybe it's actually pretty emotional. I would say it's probably more okay to just use your own voice, but you can use your body to shift and play the two roles. So I can be looking to my right as I'm playing me and saying whatever I said in that situation. And then I can simply turn left and then I can speak now as though I'm the other person in that story. And I don't think you have to do anything too radical or crazy with your voice. You just get to depict it or whatever it is. That's assuming you're standing together or sitting together. I've witnessed stories told from other speakers where, you know, it's a, a nurse leaning over a patient. And so, you know, you can use physically how you're showing up to just become those. And I think it can be really powerful, actually, to cut out any of the, and then he said, and then I said, you know, just do it. Just be in the moment. And I think it can be great to break from that moment if you want to then focus on, and here's how I was feeling, right? So if it's something like I'm standing in the kitchen and I'm just washing dishes after dinner and I hear my husband walk up behind me and he says, honey, I want a divorce. And I can act out like, you know, flipping, turning around quickly. What? I'm so sad now. We just I just got so sad. It's not a true story. <laughs> you brought me into the scene. You brought me in there. You, it, oh, no. Well, okay, but so you feel it, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so when in doubt, sort of act it out, kind of tying back almost to the be do have. Like you, you almost have to assume these characters just be them and and really let the audience take that interpretation. So on the speaking tips and as part of what we're talking about here, how much do you psychoanalyze your audience and how much thought do you put into how they're interpreting what you're saying? Do you go that deep or is it more just you're really focused on the presentation, the message and not as much on like the psychology of how they do it, how they get it? I think that I began to really transform as a speaker when I started to think about when I'm on stage, what I'm doing is I'm creating an experience for people. And it was almost one of these, oh my gosh, duh, moments for me because that's what I do in my work, in my face-to-face work with clients. I create experiences. And then when they go through those experiences, they become more self-aware. They create more connections. They have insights and ahas, all that kind of thing. And for a while, I think I used to look at speaking as different. You know, this is me up here playing the role of expert. It's my job to relay information to you. And so it was transformational for me when I remembered or realized, or I'm not even sure what what verb to use there, but at a certain point I said, you know what? No, no, no. This is an experience too. So I want to think about what is the experience that my audience is having. And so it's everything from what's the journey that they're on to what's something I can say or do right now that will actually create an impact. And I, I actually have a recent example. I love this. So my assistant came with me to my my last speaking engagement, which was about a week ago down in Palm Bay. And I made a statement that was almost the thesis really of the whole talk, which is if you're not good enough now, you never will be. And I repeated it again. So I said it twice And so Kayla, my assistant who was sitting in the audience, said that the woman next to her turned to her friend and she said, oh, I feel sick. And the very next line in my speech was, I want you to notice right now, what are you feeling in your body? Because I know, I know from my own experience of internalizing that same thought that that brings something up for me. And so now I'm asking them to really step inside themselves and, you know, notice what's happening. Like, is your gut churning? Is your chest tightening? Like what's happening for you? And so thinking about it as this is an experience and what's the experience that I want them to have so that it's something about them feels different when I'm done with my speech. Interesting. I love that. Let's jump backwards to your preparation because I'm always interested to know how people either prepare for a talk. Uh, personally, I still always get nervous, you know, and I just turn the nervous, uh, the nervous nerves into energy and I, and I try to get a, a, into more of an excitement. Do you have any pre-speech rituals or things that you do that work for you because you have all these psychological hacks for yourself? Oh, man. <laughs> it's probably an area where I might underutilize some of my own expertise. <laughs> right. This is getting back to the self-awareness, right? Get back to your human element. Okay. So I still get nervous as well. Absolutely. But one of the things that I do, well, two things really. And they're not, it's not like the simple little life hacks necessarily. One of them might be. One really is preparation. And that might sound really goofy, but when I'm getting closer to a talk or, so recently I actually took a stand-up comedy class and I performed in a stand-up showcase for the first time. Every time I thought about that, I felt like sick to my stomach or just the, that pang of adrenaline, just like the intense nerves of, oh my gosh, am I really going to do this to myself? But when I felt really confident with my set, when I had it fully memorized and I, you know, had done it in front of the mirror, I'd recorded it, whatever. And I was really, really prepared. 
then it was the day of and I felt fine. Now, five minutes before I went on stage, there was some heavy breathing backstage, you know, but, um, but preparation really makes a big difference for me. The second thing, which might sort of fall into that category of a life hack is I ask myself, <laughs> what's the worst that could happen? Now, I used to be an amazing catastrophizer. <laughs> I like that word, by the way. Oh, yeah. Like I could take, you know, one five minute set on a stage at a comedy showcase and turn that into like I'm homeless on the street. Like I was ridiculously good at like the most extreme worst that can happen kind of scenario. But then I got a dose of realism and I'm like, okay, no, realistically, what's the worst that could happen? I'm like, well, okay. In a five minute sandwich, you know, stand up set, maybe I have like four or five jokes that just, just don't land. And it's obvious to me and to the audience that I was hoping that they would laugh and they didn't. And that'll be a little bit painful and a little awkward, but the whole thing's five minutes of my life. And then it'll be over and the audience will probably completely forget about it within 30 minutes and my life will go on. So if that's the worst that will happen, could I cope with that if that happened? And every time I ask myself, can I cope with that? If that were to happen, my answer is yes. And that has given me like, that gives me so much courage to just step into whatever, because it's less about fearing what might happen and more about fearing that I can't cope with it. And if I ever think I can't cope, then I get to keep my energy focused inward and say, okay, well, what would give me the confidence that I could cope with that? Interesting. You totally got psychological right there. Like we just got all mad. I know. Yeah. No, this is good. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I love the experience concept that we talked about just before your intro. And I was going to ask you to define what those experiences would look like. And I do appreciate that you gave an example without me even asking, basically playing on the reactions of the audience that you know will happen. So it's almost like you have an idea of how this will impact people. You go ahead and impact them and then get them to look inside to help them evaluate what that is. That's very psychological of you. So let's transition from the advice, uh, again, what you're saying, the value of acting it out. You're talking about humor and that it is a bit dynamic and can be complex, but you just have to pick and choose what you want to do. Then you've got this experiential where it's not just you spouting advice, but you are having everyone lie on the couch and <laughs> think about what's happening inside of you. <laughs> exactly. And then it's nice to know that you also get nervous. I think that makes everybody feel better. But this idea of really looking at the worst case scenario and knowing that you're going to survive that worst case as a way to sort of diffuse some of that nervous energy beforehand. I like that. So I want to transition into how you sell yourself, how you get more stage time. And especially I'm interested as you're a few years into this, because a lot of our listeners are just getting started. And for those who are well beyond getting started, I think hearing from people in those first five years or so really helps to kind of refresh and recharge. So what are some of the things that you find that you're doing that works and has worked to get more stages, get more attention, build your brand and get out there as a speaker who is paid for what you're speaking about? Well, some of it is definitely not rocket science for me personally, which is ask, <laughs> ask to be the speaker. And that might sound really goofy, but it's crazy how much fear can paralyze us sometimes and how many people might find themselves sort of waiting for an invitation rather than letting people know. And so, you know, Ryan, when you were speaking earlier before I was, I offered up the be, do, have, you know, it sounds to me like you're describing what I would consider like law of attraction type of concepts. So one of the mantras that I, I had a few years ago and still do is um, speak what you seek until you see what you've said. Ooh, that's a good one. 
So I will, I will talk about it. I will share with people in conversation that that's what I do. That was a shift for me when people say, you know, what do you do as a question? So I used to really focus on being an organizational psychologist and I, at some point shifted to say, well, I'm a professional speaker. I got on stages really. And so that in and of itself, just putting it out there into the universe can create opportunities. And then something, I, I went to the um, National Speakers Association conference just last month in Denver. And one of the things that I heard over and over again that I really love that has been true for me as well is the more you speak, the more you speak. Yes. So getting on stages, getting the practice at a minimum, getting the exposure, you know, speaking to a room full of people could very likely be the thing that gets you that next opportunity. So just continuing to do that. And then one of the one of the more unique things that you're aware of, Ryan, that I started to do this year was an attempt to stand out. So I definitely do the the cold reach outs to people for opportunities. And I think it can be challenging to stand out. I really do. I think when people do respond back to me, there's something about my story that they think is really compelling and valuable for their audience. But I worked with a company called Blazoo at the beginning of the year to create what we call these speaker boxes. Now, if you try to Google that, it won't work. You're just going to get like a bunch of speakers, like audio speakers. (laughs) (laughs) Waterproof and Bluetooth and that kind of stuff, right? (laughs) Exactly. So the idea was instead of just sending a cold email, you know, or applying to be a speaker through some kind of a system, which can be great, do something else above and beyond to really stand out. So created these custom speaker boxes. So the actual box for me is purple because that's my primary brand color. And it has a word cloud on it that has, in priority order, these are the words that most encompass what I'm all about and what I want for my audiences. And then inside is a customized journal where the first few pages really focus on what is it that I can offer to them. So if they are an event planner, they're a conference organizer, or maybe in some cases, like with you, Ryan, they are another speaker. And so it has just a little bit about me, but now it's this, theoretically, it's a useful, functional thing that they get to use. And each time they use it, the idea is that it's a reminder of me and it's a gift, right? So I'm starting out immediately by, by doing this give, Hey, here's something I just want you to have. I thought you might really enjoy this. And, um, you know, I want to thank you for some of the ideas that you gave me because after, so yeah, so if it's not clear for your audience, I sent one of these speaker boxes with the journals to Ryan. She sent me a box and it's an impressive box. It's like a full on box and it's a custom box and you open it up and then there's little frifily stuff within the box that I feel like is my birthday box. And then you've got yeah. <laughs> this well-bound ringed folder with your mug there on the front and you're on the TEDx stage and then a few color slides of like, okay, this person this person has put the effort into this. I'm going to flip a few more pages and then it's just blank paper. I'm like, oh, this is functional for me now. And I'm quite the doodler. And so I've definitely used a few pages because it's it's a big size. And yeah, it, it was something that helped you to land a spot here on this show. It definitely stuck out. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved a lot of your ideas. So one of the things that I do now because of your input is I write in the journal. So now the first piece of it, it's, it's like dotted graph paper right on the inside. So I, yeah. I write the message directly in there. I think when I sent to you, I sent it with a card. And so now I write directly in the journal and I go in like partway through and I'll dog ear a page and then I'll put some other kind of note. And I usually am trying to customize that. So something that I know about the event, something I know about the person. Sometimes I've found event planners on Twitter, things like that. And I 
will follow them as a human and I take a look at the things that they tweet or Instagram or things like that. And I look for genuine commonalities. You know, what are the things that they're tweeting about or, or opinions that they have that also feel true for me, especially if I can ever connect that in with, here's the message that I want to bring to your audience. So I'll dog ear one or two pages like randomly throughout the journal where there's another message. And then there's this contact information form at the back or not information form, but sort of like a retro journal that's like, here's where you can keep your phone numbers. Do you remember back in the day? Did you ever have, Ryan, like your own little phone book? Oh my gosh. I had one of the <laughs> coolest. It was actually, it was a double-sided magnet, like the size of a credit card and oh, each man. was a magnet. And then you open it up and it's like an accordion Epic. and it has little pages that flip, 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 flip back oh, and that's forth. Great. And so it was my little, like it would snap together and you'd put it in your wallet and you'd bring it out and be like, <laughs> so yes, I, I remember that. So that sounds amazing. Yeah. So there's one yeah. of those and, so it's like important contacts and I put my <laughs> my name and my email and my phone number right there at the top <laughs> so yep. that they can do that. And then I will, when I have a direct email, I will then follow up with them a couple days later or right when it's intended to arrive. So we, we track it, we ship it, we track it. And then when it arrives, send the follow-up email. And typically what I'm asking for at that point is you know, a 10 or 15 minute phone call. Can we just jump on the phone real quick? I just want to connect with you. I want you to get to know me. And I wish Ryan that I had already implemented this so I could let you know how, how it goes, but we're adding one more layer to this now, which remind me if this came from you, because I've gotten feedback from a lot of people so far and this, maybe this was your idea too. So one thing that I'm going to, I'm filming on Wednesday. So in a couple of days I'm doing filming. So now one more layer is so if I was sending you the box again, Ryan, it would say, now I'd like you to go to lauragallagher.com slash Ryan, or maybe even Ryan Foland, right? Was this your idea? Yep. Yeah, it was my idea. Yeah, that was yeah, amazing. Idea. Amazing. We're so excited. So we're starting that this week. And so then when they go to that URL, now they're going to have a, and I'll let them know that it's like a, a video that's one minute or less so that they actually make time. Because I can tell you, like, I'd be super excited. Yeah. And how are you communicating that? Is that, is that part of the yeah. note, the handwritten yep. note? And hey, check out this. I'm going to put it in the journal itself. Totally. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So you're just, yeah, just creating a page that brings them to your site, but then also gives them a personalized message, makes them feel special. And if they're already at the URL, they might, you know, be like, oh, let's continue to click. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it'll be this personalized message to them where I'm speaking again about, you know, here's what I would love to bring to your audience or, or here's my request for us to connect and, and jump on a call, have some some text there on the landing page, keep it really simple, but also then have a call to action there where they can, I actually haven't figured out exactly what it's going to be. It could be a, a link to my acuity so they can just automatically schedule time in my calendar or if it's going to be the, the information form that I have that's part of the regular lauragallagher.com call to action. Actually, what do you think, Ryan? What's your advice? Well, what you're doing that what I think is most important is you're on one level is sort of standing out. Not everybody's sending the box to everybody. On the second level, there's that customization where you're actually handwriting into it. And the third level, what makes me think about is the thought that goes into it. I think oh, yeah. when somebody makes a, a customized video, you're actually putting your brain power into something that is for them. And mm -hmm. what I do it's something similar, but after I have an initial call with an organizer, whether they ask for it or not, I will jump into the green screen or I'll just turn on the camera and I'll make something that's a follow-up that's reinforcing because oftentimes the one person you're talking to or the two people, they're not all the decision makers. And so if you're giving somebody a tool, 
to then share with other people, it magnifies your message showing that you think that you are thoughtful, that you are not just a numbers game and that you're a little bit outside of the box by sending a box. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah. So I, I would say don't try to find a hard and fast rule for what the ask is. Go back to this customization and you might be able to spin on a certain event that they have coming up or you could, mm-hmm. you know, compliment them on a piece of content that got your attention, those kinds of things. So I think just enough of the planning process to include that you're around the box with a movie, I would figure out sort of what works from there. But what I'm hearing is two different sides of the fence here. One is the super simple advice that is just to ask, <laughs> just talk about the fact that you're a speaker. And that's something that everyone can do. And then you're going to the other extreme, which is full customized, investing in it, really a dynamic follow-up process. So you kind of have those both spectrums on one end and the other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, have you? is it too early to track the metrics and see how successful the outreach effort is? Uh, we do have various metrics, but... I don't have those in front of me at the moment. No, no, that's fine. I think, so like the first metric is, you know, was a connection made, which I, I believe the way that we define that is at a minimum a call or, you know, they've agreed to a call and it's on the calendar. And I think we're kind of hovering at like 60% on that. Wow. That's way better than a 10% open rate or something like that. Yeah. So it's pretty solid. Interesting. And, And I think, I think you have to look at, at least in my opinion, and having had the chance of talking with so many people, at the end of the day, it sounds like for the event planners, it's just risk management, right? They don't want to put their reputation online by bringing a speaker that's not top tier, going to be amazing. Their fear is getting somebody who is not good. And so if you're taking all these steps and these efforts, everything from just asking to sharing, to being top of mind, to giving them gifts, to following up, to being professional, to making a video. These are all little pieces of the puzzle that will reinforce you will not be a liability, you'll be an asset. Absolutely. I want them to feel incredibly confident and really impressed with, okay, she's thorough. You know, she's not going to phone it in. She's really serious about this. Yeah. Excellent. So from your outbound strategy, aside from asking and keeping it top of mind when you're talking and aside from your box concept extravaganza. Are there any other tips and tricks you'd want to leave with people as far as some ways that maybe you've been successful at getting stages or getting in front of these planners or anything along those lines? I think those are those are probably my my best tips at this point. Okay. And I'm going to extract the one to make it a round three, which is actually finding event planners on Twitter, oh, yeah. finding event planners on Instagram. Or LinkedIn. Or LinkedIn. But now, are you finding that they're pretty easily identifiable with the keyword of event planning to that extent? No, my short answer is no. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's been challenging. It's been, it's been tricky. It's, I will say that um, when I'm, and I say I, and that's not really fair because Kayla does so much of this <laughs> work for me. That's she right. does so much of the research and the stocking for me, which is really, really helpful. But when that's how I, I'm finding them and connecting with them, I have a much higher success rate. So it feels like it's worth it. And I like what you said. You're connecting them with them as people too, right? You're finding common interest. And I'm a big fan of letting your guard down just a bit to get personal. It's a big part of my book, Ditch the Act, which is people really need to get to know you before they can like you, before they can trust you. And at the end of the day, as a speaker, they have to trust you. So the step before that is for them to like you. And the step before that is for them to know you. 
So getting to know people on their personal feeds is a great way of starting that relationship, it sounds like, as opposed to just coming in hot with, hey, uh, you have an event. I'd like to speak there. It really does sound like you're getting a bit more, shall I say, psychological about it. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. It's very human, right? Yeah. And the last thing I want to sort of touch on is this idea of the science of human behavior. If that's what your specialty is, are you also using that specialty to get into the heads of these planners, to get into the heads or better understand where some of these event organizers are coming from? And if so, what is maybe one professional psychology tip that we can use as we're either evaluating or prospecting really based on what you know about human behavior? At a high level, I think it's about empathy. So you've spoken about this, really, which is what are they concerned about? You know, what are their fears? What would make them happy? What's going to make their jobs or their lives easier? What's going to help them look really good? And so if you go into a conversation really thinking about that and what can I do for this person, even in this conversation, you know, I've had moments occasionally where I'm asking a question theoretically for myself, but actually it's creating space for them to be a little bit more clear even for themselves. And so because I am a coach, like I'll have, I'll actually have these like small little coaching moments that I'll infuse and it may or may not have any bearing ultimately on whether they ask me to come be a speaker, but it's a way for me to add value right there in the moment. And I feel like that kind of thing can make a difference too. All right. I love it. So To wrap it up, essentially, without necessarily wrapping it, you were an actor for 15 years that got into the psychology of human behavior, only to realize that you were not looking at your own behavior from the outside, which sort of reinvigorated your mindfulness and self-awareness that's led you to this opportunity to take what you have and share it outside of your typical consulting, but to a larger stage. And on that stage, you are essentially helping people have an experience. So you're not a speaker, you are an experiencer, which I just made up. And in this experiencerness role, you've got everything from humor to inward looking to lying on the couch. Uh, I don't know why I go German with that, but I just sort of seem to. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I was head. Austrian, right? Yeah, so that's pretty close. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah, Austrian. That was. <laughs> that's that's see, you just knew my unconscious reason for referring to yep. Freud is all about the unconscious mind, right? And what I like that you're doing from the prospecting perspective is on three parts. One, super simple, easy in front of you, just asking and being being aware that part of the whole game is just letting people know that you're there and available. And then it's exciting to see you come up with a dynamic box-driven data-driven, video-supplemented notes and and amazing (laughs) attempts at stick figure drawings to get people's attention, while all at the same time, there's this this piece of empathy. Because I remember when we first talked, it really didn't sound like you were trying to pitch yourself. You were really just trying to learn more about me, trying to ask how what I needed help with. And that naturally led to the conversation of, well, I'm always looking for great guests on the show. And then boom, you got it, you grabbed it, you snatched it. And here we are, however many months later. But looking at this in general, I see that what you're doing is working. So it's exciting to see that you are working it to make it work. And so my my observation is that you kind of have broken the mold and that you're not really following what others are doing. You're really just creating a system that you think will work for yourself. And then you're working that system, essentially be, do, and have 
when it comes to your own process, which is inspiring because I hear people all the time talk about the process. And when you create your own process, you build your own box, it becomes unique to you. And so I think that that's really what stands out here. That's beautiful. You do such an amazing job of, of summarizing and synthesizing. I'm very impressed with it. Well, maybe I should say that I'm a, instead of a psychologist, I'm a summarologist. Yes, clearly. But hey, I hope that if you are listening to this, you appreciate the information enough to help repeat it in someone else's mind. So that means sharing this episode. That means reaching out to Laura. That means reaching out to me, connect with us on Twitter, get to know us. Laura, if somebody's going to find you, is Twitter the best spot? Is it Instagram? Is it your website? Where would you send people if they wanted to learn more about you? I would want to send them to lauragallaher.com. And it is you. And spell yeah, that so us, Laura is like it sounds L A U R A, but yep. Gallagher. It's not Gallagher. I know. That's what I thought about smashing pumpkins this whole time, and like yeah. not that you know, smashing watermelons. You know, yes, yes, the watermelons guy, Peter Gallagher, another actor. No, so it's Gallagher, G A L L A H E R. All right. Well, you've heard it here, and if you have to take anything from this, I think you need to be, do, and have. And for me, that would be be yourself and uh, do would be do something that works for you. And have is gonna be what you have at the end of the day, only if you continue to work the system. Cause you can send boxes all day. You can send gifts all day. But if you don't actually connect with that person on a real human level and let them know that you are someone to be known, to like, and to trust, it's all just a bunch of numbers and outreach and cold calls and stuff like that. Well, that will just take your money without any result. So it's exciting to hear this process. Thanks for the sneak peek behind the scenes, Laura. And I look forward to staying connected online and maybe we will share the stage sometime. I hope so. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs>